Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. My name is David Parker. And my name is Luke Mason. Well, old sport, tell me about uh, your favorite line from a song that you heard when you were 27. <laughs> like a song that came out when I was 27? Or... Yes, yes, that'll do. Um, let me think for a second what year that would have been again. <laughs> I don't know, because I was in Korea. So I wasn't really paying attention to new music. No, you were just listening to old music. Well, I still do that anyway. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> All right. My music is basically made between 1995 and 2007. <laughs> and then that's when it stops. They, they say there's always a period in someone's life where their music, they just stop listening to new music. Well, I listen to new music by bands I already like. Right. Well, you aren't out there discovering new bands. Uh, I guess not. No. Although it's, I would say it's a little different now with... If this was 20 years ago, maybe I would be still because music was um, more easily or, or sorry, less easily found. Right. You know, so easily, sometimes like, you had to listen to the radio. Yeah. Radio or like go to shows and stuff. Whereas now, if you have any questions about anything, it's just all over the Internet. <laughs> right. So you can just so like kind of hunker down to do your favorite. The reason I ask is because if you were at a house party where some brand new song was being played do you, do you think that'd be a cool experience like that that a really popular band just showed up at a house party you were at and and played the most popular new song i mean i would have fun because live music is yeah a lot of fun so yes i mean are you <laughs> that's or, not a rhetorical question like overly extravagant what if they were overly extravagant or do you think that would be overly extravagant to have a band show up at a party and play yeah. like like a, like a big popular band it would depend on if the presentation was extravagant or not. Right. I, I don't think their existence would make it extravagant, especially <laughs> right. the bands I like. <laughs> True. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Anyway, <laughs> we're going to be talking about The Great Gatsby, everyone, yes. which uh, Luke is not excited to talk about. That's not true. <laughs> well, he's excited to talk <laughs> about, but he doesn't like the characters. Okay. So I've been thinking a little bit about this. This book... And so we, I read the book and watched the movie a little while ago, though, and it had come about because I had talked to a good friend about a year ago about this podcast, and I asked her if she could listen to one episode or what her favorite story was to listen to, and she said, The Great Gatsby. And this had come at a time, I'd never read The Great Gatsby before. I knew of it, obviously. It's a very famous book. And... The movie had come out. Uh, I think I'd also been in Korea when the movie came out because it came out in 2013. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that seems like a perfectly good book. It's famous. It's obviously made an impact on 
our culture, especially, or probably even more so American culture. And, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald is a renowned author. Um, I even remember he was in that movie Midnight at Paris. Yes. With Owen Wilson when he could travel back to... (laughs) So he got to see all the the famous authors and and artists. Did that literary... Did that period have a name in Paris at that time in the 20s? I don't know. I don't know. The 20s are a fascinating time period because it's kind of like in between the wars and everyone thought the world was going to be better forever. And Sure. The roaring 20s, they <laughs> yeah. called it. I think probably what happened was I suffered from something we've talked about on here where I had a gap of expectation. Uh, I guess I just kind of assumed that this novel was about someone who was so enigmatic but also really uplifting and positive and wonderful and brought this kind of like effervescent joy and like every layer pulled back about him this great Gatsby who I knew nothing about would be something amazing and I just found it to not be that way (laughs) I found it to be every layer pulled back about him was another veneer that got to something a little bit more rotten at the center and I guess I was a victim of my own expectation, which is on me. You know, I, right, I right. when I finished the book and then watched the movie, I was like, okay, this is not what I expected. And so I guess I just kind of, maybe I don't get it. Okay, well, that's fair. <laughs> I, I think, I remember a few years back, I went to the Sasquatch Music Festival with some friends from my hometown and one of the headliners was Modest Mouse, who, by the way, rocked it. Like I was. Oh man, I'd love to see Modest Mouse in concert. Yeah, there. when I saw them, it was I guess 2015, and I was expecting the Beatles, and I got Van Halen. Like they just rocked my face off. It was amazing. <laughs> but you know, Modest Mouse is, especially like in the 2000s, they're kind of like this weird, quirky indie band that had cool songs, but songs that kind of sounded a little different. And I remember one of my friends said when we were talking about Modest Mouse because they were in the headlining bands, he was just like, I, I think I just don't get them. Right, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> like there's just something about their aura that was not accessible to the way he kind of experienced the world. And that was fine. I mean, I'm like, well, it's music. You can still just kind of dance to it and it's good. And I think he had a really good time at the show. I mean, that's a great, that is a great um <laughs> nice little <laughs> callback <laughs> this that's a great example of why you should go see music is because of how you might be surprised right by a band right you know so i think that what i would say is the charitable version is that after reading the great gatsby and after watching the movie i think i just don't get it like i don't get what people love about it i think okay so here's what i do get i understand the attraction to the aesthetic so the 20s kind of look and feel and music and style and obviously part of this book is the way that people talk to each other is very kind of <laughs> of the era right and 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 <laughs> and probably we'll have to get into this more of an aristocratic era of yes. american yes. history and i can understand like especially if people are fascinated with eras which i I'm not zero interested in eras of bygone history, but not nearly as much as some other people are. So I can get, I get that. I get the attraction to 
especially in the movie, the way it looks is kind of it's it's a very unique looking movie in how the bright shiny parts are so accentuated. I mean, the whole movie, the I don't know what they call it exactly, but the way that they filter it, I guess the filters put on. It's almost surreal how beautiful and pretty and not real looking it everything looks. is everything yeah. is yeah and i know that that is again thematic for what fitzgerald's talking about with his characters and that's cool too so all of that i get i i just okay here's what i don't get i don't get what i'm supposed to think about what fitzgerald thinks about this but you're 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 not <laughs> it's not clear to you what he's trying to say through this book yes yeah that's a good way to put it because i when i walk away from this book and and I I don't dislike this book. I think it's a good book. I wouldn't know if I would call it a great book, but it's a really good book. And the movie was good too. I think that my visceral reaction and my very visceral dislike and negative reaction to the characters in this book confuses me a little bit as to what Fitzgerald is trying to say. Right. <laughs> in I this book. In, in past uh, podcasts, we've talked about themes being more characters than characters. Sure. I think when we talk about South Park, that's off. I mean, the characters are kind of static, but the themes are kind of more important in a lot of ways to the narrative. We've talked about that in, in a number of different podcasts, but I think that's the foundation of this book is themes. But also, like you said, eras. And then there's another character, which is New York. Okay. Right? And the promise that New York and the East, as Nick so eloquently articulates in his monologues the the promise of the east the east coast the promise of luxury like new york has always been and i think less so now than ever perhaps in american history but uh has always been this place where dreams go in a in a way that la even isn't because la represents becoming a celebrity whereas i think or new york uh represents becoming a success Mm-hmm. And and rising above your humble beginnings to kind of make it in the big city and to make it in the big city not just by happenstance or being discovered but by sheer force of of will, right? And your oh, own bootstraps. Yeah, basically, it's the New York is the quintessential American city in my opinion because it that is at its heart what it represents. Yeah, like the American dream on a far grander scale than the American dream that might be articulated by others to that can encompass more people. But New York is the American dream that everyone really wants. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially if you consider like that's where the Statue of Liberty is. That is kind of the, if not always literally, certainly the figurative city of entrance into the United States from all over the world. Especially if you think about the first massive waves of immigration. To yeah, the they all came to Ellis New- Island. Yeah. yeah. So it would have been New York. And so then all of these disparate folk coming to New York for more or less the same purpose. kind of. And yeah, like not life. only is it a portal and an entrance, but it's also a destination. Okay. Right? Yeah, no, and I, I definitely think, slash, it makes sense that this book is more intended thematically than a character study although i don't think it <laughs> it definitely has very memorable characters oh, in oh, it 100 percent, yeah so i guess i just don't kind of know i mean usually we give a synopsis of our thoughts at the end but i feel like it's worth having it in everyone's mind what i feel about this from the outset which is how 
I think my confusion really comes from the very end of the book. Like the last few lines confuse me. So I'll read them to you yes, and tell yeah. you why I think they're confused. It's actually kind of, I had heard them before. It's a little bit iconic. This is after <laughs> Gatsby's death and Nick Carraway, who is the narrator slash character in the book, writes, Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms further, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Now again, that end, it's, you know, it's poetic and nice prose and good literary flair, <laughs> or like a restrained literary flair, I think. It's, it's good writing. Here's what I'm, confuses me is that Suggested in that ending is that the characters in this book, and specifically Gatsby, are striving to something more, better, greater. And there's something kind of noble in that. And their boats are always beating against the current. They're always fighting uphill for this. And what was confusing to me is that the whole book seems to be all of the characters, Gatsby included, lying, cheating, being fake and false to try and get that. And so I didn't understand why, like, it seemed like Fitzgerald was suggesting that the way Gatsby was, even though it was all, from my perspective, pretty negative, is still worth it if you're trying to get ahead. Uh, okay, so I, I think, <laughs> I didn't I think that's that. a misinterpretation. So I understand why you would interpret it that way, but this this is how I would would see it. This book is a tragedy. Okay. And the tragedy is articulated in this line. It alluded then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow, we will run faster, stretch out our arms, father, dot, 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 and one fine day, final. Mm -hmm. It is this, essentially, Nick, there's a scene in the movie that's really well done, but I think in the book it's even better done, where basically we have an almost um, delirious uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie, and obviously Great Gatsby in the book, or Jay Gatsby, Jay Gatsby talking to Nick, and Nick's like, "You can't go back to the past," and yeah, and Jay says to Nick, he's or Jay Gatsby says to Nick, "Of course you can, old sport," <laughs> right? And sure. I think that encapsulates the delusion that Jay Gatsby is suffering. Which okay, is that he so you're telling me then, and this is totally fair. Because I'm interpreting as Fitzgerald is actually on the side of his characters. And you're saying Fitzgerald is not on the side of his Def characters. Yeah, definitely not. Okay. Like, I, I think he's creating tragic figures to um, articulate his worldview and also to talk about the psychological neurosis that people can go through that can be caused by almost anything, particularly um, delusions of grandeur okay and in this case and why i think this book why i disagree with you that it's just a good book and think it's probably one of the greatest books is because i think it is an articulation of one of the most deadly uh delusions which is the delusion of romantic love yeah not to say all romantic love is delusional but the delusion that the desire or lust for mm -hmm. um, that romantic love can create in a person sure okay well i mean like i'm totally willing to be and, and just uh, one more point on that. Talked so out then, of it. So then it says, so we beat on boats against the current, right? So the the image is we're rowing 
against the current, which means we're not actually making any progress. We're kind of standing still. Mm -hmm. And then born back, so it means we're not even standing still. The current is too strong for us. The current of life, the current of time is pushing us in a direction, but we're not willing to go in the direction that the current is taking us. Okay, so here is my challenge to you then, David, (laughs) to convince me that Fitzgerald is writing that not out of glory or nobility, but out of sadness and tragedy. Okay. And uh, confusion, let's but, say. Yeah. And and that the title, The Great Gatsby, is an ironic one, not a authentic one. Okay. Or a straightforward one. Because okay. that's kind of... Again, I'm not an expert on this book at all. So that's just how I was like, oh. Coming away from it, I was like, well, okay. <laughs> We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We should probably do a plot rundown. Yes, okay. Just so, so that everyone's kind of... so. Uh, we're introduced to Nick at the very beginning of the book. He's moving to New York to pursue being a bond salesman, so essentially a, a low-level banker. And it's obvious that he's he's in late late his late twenties. hasn't had very much success in life. It seems has some kind of love interest back at home, but is moving to the big city to make it. And that's obvious. It's the Roaring Twenties, so everyone is filled with this sense of optimism. And uh, the f- the future is endless, and and there's obviously lots of partying and enjoyment. I mean, we were during the time of prohibition, sort of, or just after it. But really, there's a a huge sense, especially in America, of optimism. And so he moves to this small house on Long Island, in bet- like basically in between these gigantic mansions, uh, and. He's looking out over the, where he's experiencing wealth without being part of wealth. So he's kind of on the periphery of wealth. And as when he arrives, uh, he discovers that he is neighbors with this fairly charismatic but mysterious fellow who throws these elaborate parties every night. Nobody knows why, spending extravagant amounts of money, but has all these rumors about him. And we also find out that Nick is uh, the cousin of a very, of a very beautiful and very wealthy woman who, well, and she's wealthy. She was already wealthy, but even more wealthy because she married uh, basically the heir to a to a large fortune. His name's Tom, and her name is Daisy. So Tom and Daisy live across the bay on east uh, on the east uh, part of the island, whereas. Um, I call it East Egg and West Egg because uh, the bay looks like an egg. <laughs> and so he goes to visit them, gets to see his cousin, has an interesting experience in this in hanging out with them, and then is also spends some time with Tom, who's Daisy's husband, uh, goes and meets Tom's mistress, spends some time in the city with their friends, comes back, and eventually gets to meet Jay Gatsby. And Jay Gatsby immediately enthralls him. But there's always this sense that Nick has that Jay is kind of disappointing or there's there's something wrong with him or he's lying. And you get that from the almost the very beginning that basically Jay Gatsby is hiding something. And we're also introduced to this by the many rumors we hear about him. But all throughout this, we're painted this extravagant picture by Fitzgerald of just opulence and wealth and the excitement of getting to be even a moth around the flame of such wealth, which is basically what Nick is. He's kind of a moth, but everyone else in this book are are moths flitting around this flame, 
that's being produced, this heat and light that's being produced by, by Jay Gatsby, and no one is sure why. And then there's also a character that I forgot to mention named Jordan Baker. And Jordan is a tennis player and a golfer, a championship golfer. And she is a childhood friends with Daisy. And through a series of events, um, Nick ends up going out with her and spending time with her. And we're given the impression probably sleeping with her. But this is, you know, a book written in the 20s. So all these things are obfuscated through metaphor and analogy and illusion they don't make it seem that hidden though with tom no (laughs) no but even then they don't like explicitly reference sex being had it's kind of alluded to like they disappeared for a while and came back things like that um so what basically happens is uh jordan finds out because jay takes her aside because he knows her childhood friends that jay gatsby had at one point been a a, a lover of daisy's and um, and that he still cared about her. And what he really wanted was for Nick, who lives beside him, obviously, to invite Daisy over for tea so that he could stop in and they could uh, <laughs> they could rekindle their love. And he doesn't, uh, Jay Gatsby doesn't care at all that uh, she's married to Tom, doesn't believe that she loves Tom, is convinced that uh, actually she still loves him. They meet up, they start an affair, and then kind of the climax of the book is Jay Gatsby forcing Daisy to confront Tom and what he wants a lot from her. He wants Daisy to tell Tom she never loved him. And he needs that because he, he, for his worldview to, for his delusion to maintain it, to maintain its strength, he needs to believe that she never, that, that their love is special and that it's greater than any love that's ever been. And, and she never actually loved anyone else. It's actually something that I really want to get into later on. She breaks down, can't... She does tell Tom that, and then Tom challenges it and says, oh, you didn't love me in this moment? You didn't love me in that moment? And brings up moments from their relationship where there probably was love. But then Tom does an interesting thing. He's had private eyes go and investigate Jay Gatsby, and it turns out that Jay Gatsby has come by his wealth somewhat nefariously, uh, whether it's through gambling or selling alcohol through drugstores, uh, various other means, it appears that... Because this is Prohibition times, right? Yeah, I think it's just after oh, Prohibition, just after, okay. basically, but because they are offered cocktails like at a bar. Uh, I'd have to look into that. I don't actually know the time period of Prohibition, but, but bootleggers would have made their fortune during Prohibition. So, anyway, long story short, suddenly Daisy just becomes very cold and and kind of pushing... Uh, Jay Gatsby off because she this doubt has been placed into her mind about who he actually is and the conclusion of the story is a, a rather dramatic scene in which she is driving back to um, Long Island with Jay in, in Jay's car and Tom and Jordan and Nick are driving in Tom's car and Daisy actually runs over Tom's mistress, killing her, <laughs> but then just speeds off and doesn't tell anyone. And then Tom's mistress's husband, Wilson, ends up finding out that Jay killed uh, his wife. Well, he thinks that... Initially, like, he thinks Tom did because yeah. Tom had been driving Jay's car when they stopped on the way. Yeah, there was like York. evidence that it was Jay's car that had hit yeah. his wife. And so he assumed Jay was driving, even though Daisy was actually driving. Well, actually, no, sorry. He assumed Tom 
it was Tom's car somehow or Tom's wife, and he ended up showing up at the house, and Tom told him that it was Jay driving. So basically, he goes and kills the Great Gatsby, and the conclusion of the book is Nick kind of trying to like parse together the you know the last details of his life, and no one like three people showing up at the funeral. Yeah. And basically all of these friends had been fake. All of these friends had been empty. There was the the empire of dirt that Jay Gatsby had built resulted in nothing. And uh, there's that obviously iconic line about how Daisy and Tom just kind of destroyed things throughout life and then retreated to their wealth and, and privilege. And they they left. And so Nick is left with this kind of hollow view of of the promises of New York and retreats back to the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's and that's the that's a plot summary. I would say then, yeah, probably the biggest theme of the book is how much substance there isn't behind all the flashiness. Yes. I think that's the second biggest theme. Okay. Well, it just seems ever present in the like you watch the movie again like i said before the whole aesthetic is these beautiful lights beautiful shining great parties everyone ultimately pretending like everything is great and that they're better than they are and that that they're better friends than they are and yet the moment anything has to get real for them it's all insecurity and distrust and arrogance and um, manipulation there's just nothing below the surface for anyone really in this book like i i think probably nick is the least offensive character in the book in his actions and he's just kind of neutral or even a little bit boring well the funny thing about nick is he actually does come from a lot of wealth and privilege himself like whole Areas, nothing compared to nothing this. Nothing compared to this, but all like in his hometown, like streets are named after his ancestors and like his family's well to do and he went to the best schools and like they all made their money in bonds and banking and stuff. But his father I love the beginning, right? I'd always been told that, you know, when you're looking at other people, realize they didn't have the same opportunities that you did, right? And he, and then he's like, he basically says, how pretentious is that? But that's, you know, how, what I was trained and, and, and part of the humility that I had, but also what got me into trouble because I became friends with these vacuous, because I tried never to judge people. And then <laughs> by not judging people, I ended up always friends with the wrong sort of people. Yeah, people who would not do for him what he might do for them. Yeah, yeah, that and also just people who who maybe maybe he gave them the benefit of the doubt and they didn't deserve right. that benefit. I mean, I don't know. Who do you want to start with? Let's start with Nick, I guess. I actually found him really boring. <laughs> He's like a total passenger in this story. He doesn't call out any rumors on Gatsby. He doesn't really try to interrogate them. And he just kind of seems, he's just kind of waiting to see what someone else will do. He's like a person who might say something like, oh, well, we'll just have to see what happens. He doesn't believe in his own agency. It feels like he, that he could be the person who stands up to Tom, stands up to Gatsby, stands up to like any of the people in the book who are kind of being shitty at any given time. Maybe it's what you said, that non-judgmentalness that was taught to him, but he just, he seems like almost like a useful idiot for Gatsby in this yeah, book. like 
I I I, can, I love that a passenger, but I think uh, it's interesting because he's uh, he is the narrator, and yet he's not just self-effacing. I don't think he really believes he's very interesting at all. And you see that at one point where he's basically told us, we're I don't know. 40 50 pages into the book and he's like you know i should note that you know my time in new york the the three things i've written about weren't actually the majority of the things that were consuming me like i'd have lunch with my friends after work and i was spending a lot of time working and reading and but like honestly i love what fitzgerald is doing here because he's taking someone who not only is uninteresting because i think most of most of the characteristics that we see in Nick are uninteresting and like you said he just goes so uh, supposedly he's you know Daisy's his cousin and then he mm-hmm. just goes along with Tom to go, go to basically his flop house yeah where he keeps his mistress and just hangs out with him for the whole night mm-hmm. and, and it's almost as if he doesn't have any kind of moral fortitude or principles yeah or anything guiding him he like you said he's along for the ride yeah and he so yeah he definitely does not seem at all, like he's the master of his fate. No, I don't. And he, I don't even think he would. He he doesn't seem to know how to be. No, and that it does bother him. Yes. Like he's very discontented in the book, and definitely more so in the movie. They kind of, obviously, in a movie, you're able to portray more body language and facial expressions. And there's a lot of, because I think it's the beginning of the movie. He's kind of doing voiceover and remembrance. Well, he's, talking, he's basically talking to a therapist. He's a little older, yeah. And yeah, he's, and he's looking out a window. He's very discontented, and, and it. Probably won't surprise you again that this reminds me of another great Emerson line. And Emerson says, discontent is infirmity of the will. It's the want of self-reliance. Infirmity of the will. So discontent is infirmity of the will. I love that. It is the want of self-reliance. And if Nick wants anything, but not want in the, he's desiring, but want in that he lacks it, it is self-reliance. He can't, he just defers Every single moment he defers and you, this is my confusion, not with just with Nick, with, but with this book is that, and maybe this is just because this book was written in an era where these things didn't seem as obvious to people, I guess. But the whole time I'm looking at Nick in all the decisions he's making and, or lack of decisions because he's just doing whatever anyone else says to him to do. And I'm like, this is going to suck for you, right? You know that, right? You know that you can't do anything enjoyable in life unless you're somehow calling the shots sometimes about anything (laughs) like how nick are you ever going to get any satisfaction about anything you're ever doing ever if you're just he's just an echo of anyone around him yeah he he like his like his plate is so predictable yeah to me he's like a chameleon because he kind of just fades into any surrounding that he's in and he's a wallflower yeah and so okay here's another good confusion with me at this book is that okay this book is so unbelievably famous and yet here we have the narrator and a, and a main character of the book being in a way that seems so obviously counterintuitive and easy to identify why it's a negative thing. And it just, it just seems like A to B to me. And then I'm like, okay, well, what am I missing? <laughs> like what, right, what right. am I missing in one of the greatest books ever written with such an easy to understand character that is making bad decisions? Well, What's the layer I'm missing? I don't think Nick? I don't think the question is why is he making bad decisions. I don't think that's the question the book is asking. The book is showing you a person, and I we all have seen people like this, but 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 people who um, thrive on almost leech off of the drama and interesting aspects of others. 
Okay. And their their very identity is kind of tied to the more Okay, a great example. But this, of this bothers him. Yes. Like the fact that he well, but can't he, do but he can't articulate leech. why it bothers him. So, okay, then again, I'm just is this a warning from Fitzgerald of how not to be? Well, I think it is a description of the kind of person. So, remember when we did um I Heart Huckabee? Yeah. And there's the constant story about Celine Dion. Right? Uh, Shania Twain. Shania Twain, sorry. Uh, Shania Twain and how he tells that story all the time because that's something that makes him, he thinks it's something that makes him interesting and special and better than others. And we see through the, you know, deconstruction of his psyche that, that occurs in the movie that that is wrong and we see why. But I think this is a portrait not uh, of Nick in that, Nothing that happens to him, and maybe it's a depression or something, and I think that's why in the movie they hint at the fact that he's in therapy. But nothing that happens to him seems to have the significance of the things that happen to more interesting, better people, his betters, right? Yeah, the other characters. The other characters. People who are willing things into existence. People who have created something for themselves. People who who have passions. Like, one of my favorite... Okay, so let's talk about his relationship with Jordan. Because I think this is the epitome of what's wrong with Nick. Yeah. He's never quite in love with her. Even when it ends and she's engaged or whatever and he has his last conversation with her, he's like, I was sad, confused, and half in love with her. Half in love. (laughs) He can't even be fully heartbroken, fully in Mm -hmm. love. Because at the beginning, he's never in love with her. Now... There are inter- that, that's a good example of more infirmity of the will. Yes, that's exactly my point. And yeah. so this picture that we get is this person who can't be interested in his own decisions and in his own life, and therefore he needs to leech off of the decisions and existence of more interesting people. Yeah, no, that that all makes a lot of sense. Like, and I that's my interpretation of him too. Like that's what he's happening. Maybe this book is just a layer above what I can even comprehend because, like you, in the way you referenced I Heart Huckabee's Brad, the character who does tell that Shania Twain story over and over and over, and then who gets humbled by it by it being repeated back to him, and then he, you know, he has to actually face it, and he does, and he kind of has a moment of growth and discovery, and that never happens to Nick. Like Nick doesn't get that, at least in the book. And I mean, maybe he does in the movie a little bit with therapy, but we don't get that sense either. It's just, and maybe this is why you're saying it's a tragedy. I think, I think maybe tragedies a... don't have happy endings, right? Because <laughs> yeah. Nick yeah. is just pathetic, 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 and then the book ends. <laughs> yeah. And then so then, okay. Okay. So then we have to basically just say this is an entire book of a warning of how not to be then. Is that the best way to learn from it? So, sort of. Yeah, sort of. But I also think it's a warning of how not to think and how, not just how to be, but it's a warning of – it's it's a kind of a tripartite warning. I think there's really – no, I mean every character is a warning. Let's take Wilson, the, uh, the mechanic. Yeah, right? the guy who ends up killing Gatsby. The guy who ends up killing Gatsby and then ended up – I think he's executed. But something like his life basically ends. But he is living this zombie-like existence for 11 years where he's so unaware of his surroundings and so unaware of what's going on and so complacent that he doesn't even know. I mean, Tom jokes he's so dumb he couldn't even recognize himself in the mirror, right? 
he's so unaware of what's going on that he doesn't even realize that his wife has stopped loving him and is in having an affair. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> he's so, out of touch, to say the so least. So there's a warning. His life is a warning. Her life is a warning. Myrtle, right? She's so obsessed with wealth and there's a scene in the book where she's just like i have i want to buy all these things and i need to write them down so i remember all the things to buy because because tom's so rich he's just gonna buy her whatever she wants mm-hmm. so she's just like so excited she's gonna buy a collar for her dog and ashtrays like all this stuff right so the warning is when you're discontented with the life you have and then create lies for yourself basically she's she's convinced herself that the only reason that tom hasn't left daisy is because they're uh, Catholic and Daisy doesn't believe in divorce, right? Because that's the lie that Tom has told her, and she's being a kept woman, <laughs> basically. But you know, she's convinced herself that Tom actually loves her. Okay, so this is just what you've just been saying has made me think a little bit because I think every single character, every single one in this book, is a warning. I think every single person that comes around in this is either shallow, manipulative, evil dishonest, uh, superficial, conniving, short-sighted, selfish, and kind of like has a soul ugliness to them. But what's interesting is that they don't all have that. They're, they interplay, so they're all like a little bit uniquely yeah. not worth yeah. being. <laughs> they're all, exactly. <laughs> In and different it's, ways. This interaction so maybe, of maybe it's like a, it could be like a reimagining of that great Tolstoy line where he says, isn't it? I think all families are happy in the same way, but all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. And maybe it's like every lost soul is lost in its own way. Yeah, I, I <laughs> and would agree an, with that. There's an idiosyncrasy. But, like, but then if that's what Fitzgerald is trying to do, I think that, that there is a kind of a genius there. And why that. is Great Gatsby such an amazing character is because he's a tragic hero. He epitomizes the tragedy of obsession and single-mindedness and there's that line like people often say life is best viewed through one window right (laughs) like he is the well he's certainly tragic i can't wait to hear the hero part well the tragic (laughs) hero (laughs) well like the tragic hero is within literature the character whose life you don't want to emulate he's the hero of the story in that in the sense of being the main character okay i i really don't see anything heroic about him though well the See, this is this is it. The Amer- he's the American hero. He's the pulled up by the bootstraps, comes from nothing, made something of himself beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Well, that's dreams. pretty fucking depressing because it's a total lie. That's Fitzgerald's point. Yeah, like the whole American dream is a lie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, but then <laughs> then you'd have to say, well, okay, Fitzgerald, what about people who do improve their lot in life through? more honest forms of labor and entrepreneurship that aren't just manipulation yeah, and of I others. Think he's not in a country that <laughs> no other country in the world has had before like the US has. Yeah. And I think he's not interested in talking about that, right? He's interested okay. in, in, in talking about this. Sure. Fair uh, enough. And uh, with that caveat in place I can <laughs> I can handle it then. Because I think uh, this this book was written later in his life too. This is his last book. And I think he's he'd become very uh, suspicious of material wealth, material possessions, the value that they actually hold. Mm-hmm. And and, I was, the, and in that sense, he is an early progenitor of the 
American extravagance, or the critique of the American extravagance, or like a f- certain form of opulent American exceptionalism. Because one of the things that is thematic in this book that I think would make the American Republican sensitivity, and I don't mean political party Republican, but like Democratic Republican voting as sensitive is that a lot of this book is about a kind of American aristocracy. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was <laughs> and, just... And the different rules, I guess, that apply to people who just are don't ever have to worry about money for their whole life. Yeah, well, and this is the interesting part about, and it's talked about in the, near the end of the book, but the most important thing in The Great Gatsby is Jay's story. And Jay's story is a lie. It's a lie he's telling himself, right? That's how he can convince <laughs> others. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and not only a lie that he's telling himself, but a lie in the sense that he can never be one of those people that he wants to be. And the reason he can't is because you're not allowed into that class, even if you have a lot of money. I was just in uh, England and have talked to a lot of my friends who are going to Cambridge and Oxford. And one of the things that blows my mind about England, but that I realized that I wanted to talk about with you, particularly about this book, is class, the classes that are just, they're just there. And you don't get to be a member of the upper class, even if, for example, a great example is um, Prince William marrying Kate. Well, Kate was seen as a commoner. And we're like, how is she a commoner? Her dad is worth tens of millions of dollars and is like, has built an, an, an empire, a business empire. Oh, well, that doesn't matter. That's new money. That's not, you're not a part of the upper class. That's not money that's been in your family for centuries. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that, yeah, that money is like, it needs to be cleaned, basically. <laughs> right now it's dirty money because it's new and, and you're not going to have the air of the upper class. So the American dream tells us we can become whatever we want, right? With enough hard work and enough will, let's, let's say. And this is why... Jay Gatsby is so attractive to so many people, including in the movie. Like, people love this character, despite him being a deceptive, probably criminal person. Do you think, though, they love him or they are intrigued by him? I think, especially early on in the book, he's not really well known. Like, Nick hears a whole bunch of rumors. No, no, no. I don't mean in the book. I mean, people love this character like that has been written about like why do people love to read the great gatsby i'm thinking about it more as a theme they love him as a theme because he is a man who came from nothing who willed his way into the you know into the extravagant life that kind of here's how i'd put it so if donald trump is a poor person's image of a rich person so is jay gatsby he achieves what I think people are are striving towards when trying to become extravagantly wealthy. So Jay Gatsby is the 1920s version of Trump. Sort of. Interesting. Sort of, sort of. Like, obviously not a personality-wise at all because he's very polished and and works very hard to, to maintain an image of... This is another example. He's working very hard. He wants acceptance into this inner circle. He wants... All he wants is to be bled in. So that's what he wanted before he ever met Daisy. That's what he dreamed of. That's why he left. That's why he was on the yacht with uh, Cody. Yeah. Okay. So then if that's true, do you think then that the people who do 
venerate and want to emulate Gatsby in culture, not in the book, did they just not read the last 30 pages of the book? Yeah, probably. <laughs> like, is that what we have to say? Like, they read they read the first 85% of the book and then decided to stop there and just keep their illusion about Gatsby alive? I, th- I think that's... <laughs> because a... the end of the book, like... I know. There's no way you could read that end of the book and think that anything good comes from being Gatsby. Oh, I, I agree. <laughs> so but then like... where, where's that disconnect then, do you think? Where's the disconnect in a person who wants to look up to someone like Gatsby as the American hero who lived his dream, pulled himself up, wait a minute, it's all a lie, and he dies alone? Like, what would make someone only pay attention to the first part of that story, not the second part? Well, like, this is a st- not a new story. Look at Citizen Kane, considered probably one of the greatest American films ever made. And the idea is, I mean, Solomon from the Bible, another example Someone who gets everything and finds out it's worth nothing. Except the... Ozymandias. Yeah. Right? The king of the desolate wasteland. (laughs) Yeah, look, gaze upon my works in despair. Yeah. Let's go back to Romeo and Juliet. Two stupid teenagers killed themselves. You could summarize the whole thing as. And yet people love that story. People love tragedy. Because it makes love seem more powerful. Basically, it makes... Love seemed like the most beautiful thing imaginable, so beautiful that it can destroy you. Yeah, well, I but, think... But I think that's, that's not necessarily the right interpretation of Jay Gatsby, because I don't think he loved Daisy as a person. He loved Daisy as an idea, and part of that idea, which is very well articulated by Fitzgerald through Nick in the book, is she was a nice girl, and she was nice because she was wealthy. And there's that great line where Fitzgerald writes... Her youth was preserved by the trappings of wealth, almost yeah. like in a sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. Like basically, wealth preserves youth in a way that normal middle class slash poor life cannot, mm-hmm. and or poverty cannot. So here would be my contention. My contention is that people love it not because it tells them how to live a better life, but because it seems important. Uh, okay, so in the same way that Nick is drawn, just drawn to Jay Gatsby in this almost romantic way, like he admires him so much and yet doesn't seem to to like anything about him, but he's yeah. fascinated by him. Well, I guess <laughs> the only way to really like resolve this empirically is to pull the entire <laughs> United States to see what they think about Gatsby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that'd be an interesting point. Because I do not understand. So, to me, the facade of this book and every character in it is manifestly obvious. Like, the facade is the first thing I see, and I see right through it. Like, I, I don't feel fooled by anything in this book. And it sounds like what you're saying is that Gatsby or the idea of Gatsby actually fools a significant amount of. I guess, Americans, into thinking that this is something worth being when it's not. Okay, well, like meme culture, okay? Let's let's go into meme culture for a moment. Okay. What it, one of the most quintessential memes since 2013 when this movie came out is a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio holding up a glass of champagne mm-hmm. with fireworks going on behind him. 
And that is not shared in the meme verse, let's call it, as a, oh, look at this tragic figure. It's shared as making it, celebration, cheers to you, your success, like you're rocking it. That's when that meme is shared. Yeah, but is that meme about Great Gatsby or is that meme about Well, it's from <laughs> Well... I mean, I don't. Who knows where the what the meme? But it's from that movie. I uh, know. I know it's from the movie. And it's, I, I just, don't think it's Leo. The thing is with memes, though, that you can easily share a meme without knowing the source that it comes from. So you could share that meme as a form of congratulatoryness. But then, if someone actually knew the story of the Great Gatsby, I mean, this would be obviously really like ostentatious to do. But it could be. It would be logical and accurate if you shared that meme. Someone could write back. You know how that ends, right? Is that what you're wishing for me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that to me is people not knowing the story and then maybe the movie itself not marketing itself in a way that would lend knowledge of the true end <laughs> to him. Because obviously in on the internet, <laughs> you don't want to just like deflate people, but you could easily write under that meme like, this story ends tragically, and all of this is a lie. Is that what you mean? Okay, let, let's uh, look. <laughs> and at that's it. not what people are intending with a meme, yeah. right? So again, like I just guess I'm trying to give people more credence or benefit of the doubt here with that. I actually would guess if you, if you actually read the whole book and discovered the fate of Gatsby, you don't ever, not once, view him as someone worth being. Right. Not a right. single, hmm. not not once in the book, even before I knew the end of the book, I was like, this guy is a total fucking phony. There's nothing authentic about this guy. And I didn't even know about his untrue or the way he got his wealth. I didn't know about that. Obviously, you don't find out. I think I can't remember. It was like near... Almost the very end. Well, yeah, near, like definitely near the end of the book. And yet I still picked up on that. And so I guess I choose to believe that because of that was so obvious to me, it's not hidden to others either. And so, I mean, we're getting a little bit into just like, how is Gatsby perceived in our culture? Okay, so here's a question. Do you think- I don't know if a meme is wa- a fair. Do you think anyone wants to emulate Kanye West? Probably. Uh, yes, definitely. I think that there is a very different aspect in that he's a real person. Like sure, He, he sure. exists in the world, and so that there is- but there's a there's More. an element of celebrity there that sure. regardless of you can comment on how, however you want on how he lives his life, uh, you could say there's nothing to emulate there. Probably not true. I think you know his his creative talent mm-hmm. is impressive, and so. But beyond that, you could say, well, how he lives his life, how he talks, how he seems to be erratic. Maybe that's not you know how you would want to live. But there are people who worship him essentially. Yeah, I For, mean, like. For example, two nights ago, I was checking what was trending on Twitter, and it was Jesus Christ is King, and I was like, "What is going on? <laughs> like, this this seems odd to me." And it turns out that that's an album that he's releasing. Sure. So. Look, okay, I'm not saying zero people are fooled by Gatsby. <laughs> I think a lot of people are fooled by Gatsby. Um, I don't know. I would say that perhaps it's more a product of the marketing machines of our culture that has made it seem like Gatsby is a hero or a heroic figure. And I just can't think that if you read the book all the way through, you would ever think that. 
And so maybe the meme you're referring to or our general, uh, we know what kind of the success Leonardo DiCaprio has had in his life. So it's like not exactly easy to pull apart him from the character of Gatsby in the movie, especially with how lovely they've made it. And I mean, if you want to get into breaking it down like the, that scene with him putting forward that glass and welcoming as a congratulatory thing is narratively a forerunner to show the lengths he's willing to go to to hide his emptiness and i'm not willing to say because i don't know because we don't get the inside scoop that there's that same emptiness to kanye oh yeah, yeah. i'm not sure that that would be like the I, one of the great 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 things about fiction is that we get some kind of resolution to what's going on in people's lives and brains in a way that we never do in, in real life. Real yeah. life <laughs> okay. You know? Okay. Well, here, here, so, here's my here's my question to you then. Do you think, given the choice between living a normal life, you know, getting up, going to their job, coming home, buying their house, having a car, having kids, growing old, dying? but never being known, never never having anything extravagant, or living a shorter life but getting to where Gatsby got, if you gave that choice to the majority of people, what choice do you think they would make? Ooh, I I think there would be a, a large amount of people in both camps, and I don't – I couldn't give you no, a I'm prediction not of a, a breakdown. But I guess, I guess my point is – I do think – It was more of a rhetorical question. I think more sense. than half of people would choose the less extravagant route. I yes. do. I do yeah. think more than, more than half of the people in the world, or more than half of the adults in North America, let's say, would not choose the life of absurd extravagance at the cost. See, what, part of it too, though, is that – um, you're kind of, what you're kind of asking too is what level of foresight do I think the general human population has? And I think that it's could always be more, but I, I guess it's a fundamental intuition on what you think people are like. And I guess I think that there are more people than we think who are able to be thoughtful and mature about that kind of stuff. I will bring this up and we've talked about it twice already on the podcast, but like I think about something like I think about South Park to get South Park at a deep level. You have to be pretty smart, I think, and to understand and pay attention to it. And the model and the model that South Park uses is to treat its audience as intelligent. And but, but okay. Same but- with, same with the Simpsons. Uh, same with the greatest shows they treat their audience as very intelligent able to keep up and Seinfeld too even though I haven't seen Seinfeld I think that there's a genius to it so I think I think that there is a larger than we think untapped market of people who would understand that you don't want to be Gatsby right right Uh, but there's I'd say at least none of them are on Twitter (laughs) <laughs> that's well, the point from some of them probably are i'm on twitter and i like gatsby <laughs> no. yeah but you don't want to be gatsby no but okay so this gets more to the point no i don't want to be gatsby but i think the the argument that is being made here is okay so whether i want to be him does that mean i don't understand him 
Oh no, I I and, understand. And I think the love that people have for this book is the same reason people really love great stories, and it's because the emotions that he's experience are so experiencing are so common and so visceral for people, and the nostalgia, particularly he, it is a nostalgic book. It's a nostalgic movie, and the disease that nostalgia can be become is so well articulated that people may not love him but they feel a deep affinity for him uh i guess i'll just have to take your word for that i don't think that's true <laughs> you don't think people feel affinity for I, him? I i don't think i don't know i don't know i would say that i think it's a famous book that's made our way into our culture and most people don't really know it. And the people who do know it don't. Okay. It depends what you mean. Exactly. Like I feel an affinity. No nah, affinity is too positive connotation. I feel an, I understand, or I feel an empathy or a kind of a connection to some of his, what would you call them? Like some of his insecurities, like his desire to be loved and his desire to be fitting in. Like those were all things that I remember struggling with when I was 15, not when I was 25. There, like there are well, things, there, speaking of which, there are things that I grew out of. Great. Well, and also <laughs> these are not old people. Sorry? These are not wise old people that we're dealing with as characters. They are young people. They're yeah. At the I like to call it the the early thirties the golden age of youth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, that is a good line because <laughs> my mom likes to call her sixties the uh, the youth of old age. So <laughs> yeah, that's good. Shout out to my mom who's good with these things. <laughs> Has these awesome phrases. I guess. Uh, I'm, I'm appreciating so like, this because it's making me articulate, really articulate what I love about this book. I think that what Jay Gatsby represents is a person who has willed themselves into the life they wanted. Now, uh, willed themselves or had it fall in their lap because they met someone else who was rich and gave them all their money. Aha, but, but, aha, but he didn't. So where did he get that money? Well, he, I mean, he had to work with that, the, the, as they call him, the Jewish fellow. Oh, right, because he but made he more money. Anything from he was he was left twenty five grand, but the the man's widow used lawyers to make sure he didn't get any of it. So when he actually met, when he actually got to New York, he had nothing, and he built it all. Remember, he he slips up at one point, and he tells Nick, "I made all of this in three years." Yeah, but so then he but he gets it from bootlegging is that how he makes uh, so, the money uh, i mean it's, it seems like it's kind of like the gray area of the law so you could sell <laughs> sure. booze through a drugstore because it was a medicine in fact actually there's a funny story about churchill uh during world war ii churchill at one point when he went to america to have a meeting had a doctor write him a note saying that he had to have alcohol <laughs> so he wasn't breaking american law when he was drinking because I mean, obviously, Churchill was a notorious alcoholic, but so he wasn't made him well. more interesting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So somehow it's shady business gambling. Okay, but that he's made his fortune on, but so, he didn't get anything from that guy. So it doesn't. Oh, okay. So uh, since you've read this more recently, why is that even in the story then? Like, what's the relevance? Oh, because of that's that? where he learns the mannerisms of the upper oh, class. Oh, okay. And okay. How he learns to act like. So he actually him. did make his money himself. <laughs> 
himself. Yeah. So why is he not confident about that ultimately? So, so I'm going to read you a, a passage that I think his heart beat faster as Daisy's white face came up to his own. So what's being sorry? What's being described here is the first time he kisses Daisy, uh, like back in Kentucky or in the story in, in Louisiana. Okay, yeah, oh, Louisiana, Louisville, Louisville, which Louisville, is in Kentucky. Kentucky. <laughs> You're right. <Sorry. laughs> That's bad. Ooh. Okay. Anyway, he knew that when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable vision to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. He waited, listening for a moment longer the tuning fork that had struck upon a star. Then he kissed her. As his lips touched, she blossomed for him like a flower, and the incarnation was complete. So when Gatsby's father shows up for the funeral and meets Nick, he says he was always going to be something great. He always had a vision for his future. He was always disciplined. He shows Nick uh, his old journals where he's like, get up at this time, exercise, regimented, disciplined, approach to success he was incredibly successful in the army and like actually did win a whole bunch of rewards and did go to oxford for five months but still he went to oxford so a lot of these things who is jay gatsby well he's actually that boy who left the midwest to go make a better world for himself and found and found and utilized every single opportunity that came into his path to lift himself out of the condition that he found himself in at birth why is Daisy such a tragic element to his life? She's tragic because, as I read in that quote, the moment his unutterable vision, so the, the desire he'd had to, to transcend his beginnings, is corrupted by her becoming suddenly his obsession. And what is Daisy? What does she represent? Daisy represents that upper class sensibilities the the aristocracy and so instead of marrying his dream to the american dream of rising up through entrepreneurial through force of will he's now married his vision of his future to being a member of this aristocracy okay yeah that makes sense i don't know how that would shift like how we would still think about him though because again that just makes him seem like a passive observer unable to be in charge of anything in his life that means that he had the same infirmity of the will that nick did that he can't actually reflect on the fact that he's chasing a ghost in what he wants of daisy as opposed to what she actually is and can give him um he seems unable to calibrate his own value system then to figure out what (laughs) why he would even care about the aristocracy like the things that he's chasing are so fleeting and ephemeral and he seems unable to grasp that yeah i think that's the that's the tragedy sure but then i guess i just don't see why why he can't like there doesn't seem to be any reason why he can't be smarter (laughs) well you know like there's like are we are we because then because then if there's no choice for him in any of this this is a very sad book because it's just fate like it's fate i don't i don't think fate you're gonna care about bad things and shitty things and then you're just gonna die alone (laughs) and so i know i'm being a little bit more antagonistic about this one but i really am 
I really don't think that there is a value in this story. The punchline has to be this for me, so far anyway. Everybody in this book is a warning of how not to be if you want to have a fulfilling life in any way. Gatsby as warning, I think, is very useful. (laughs) Gatsby as worth emulating, I guess all I could say then is, yeah, you're free to go jump into your empty graveyard too, I guess. (laughs) Alone (laughs) and unloved. uh, Yeah, no one at your funeral. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, I agree with you, but I think it's more nuanced than that. Three things to answer what you just said. The first, could he have changed his mind? Yes, I truly do believe that if you actually spend time thinking about how you think, uh, actually analyzing your motivations for things, um, being ostensibly a scientist with your own emotions and reason that most people, not all, some people don't have the mental capacity to do it, but most people... Uh, can improve their situation and improve their outlook simply by reflection uh, and and meditation on... And maybe reading books like The Great Gatsby and and realizing that that you don't want to go down that path. Exactly. (laughs) But I am not even remotely surprised, and I think this is the uh, beauty of what Fitzgerald does here, that people don't do that. Because I think that is... I mean, I know we go over this again and again, but I think it's probably one of the most important ideas I've ever come across is that the default setting for humans is not reflective. Is, is, our biological default setting is, is survival, is selfishness, and the only reason that we spend time being reflective on the higher things, I think, is a testament to what makes humans special, but it's not natural. <laughs> so you think that's why a lot of people would interpret Gatsby as someone great yeah because they're not being reflective they're they're thinking about (laughs) having all those things they're thinking about hosting those well then this is a fun but hold on hypothetical but they're they're thinking about being mysterious what is cool about Gatsby you're right I mean even Nick says in the book he became bored with Gatsby at one point because he just was like oh he's actually not that interesting Mm -hmm. right um once even layer one is removed what's left right (laughs) And yet he's still fascinated by him. And I think what he's fascinated by is what we've already talked about and I'll reiterate is that he, despite his improper obsessions, has been able to kind of set a guiding light, that set the green light before him and pursue it relentlessly until he achieved his goal. It's similar to why we're fascinated by Citizen Kane. He goes from nothing to extreme wealth but the tragedy of both Citizen Kane and The Great Gatsby is that the is the tragedy of Solomon. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Yeah, okay. How is that not 110% warning? No, I'm not saying it isn't warning. <laughs> what but I'm... what is it beside that? Like, what could it be other than a warning or additionally? Oh, like, this ad- is... Additionally, it is, as with... I would argue all great literature, a description of it is when you read something and you look at it and you say, ah, I have felt that way. I have felt that feeling. And you just articulated something I've always known but never been able to say. Okay. And I think that Gatsby articulates emotions that many of us have had. Yeah. In, in, in his character. Sure, yeah, okay. I, I, I'm definitely not disagreeing with any of that. I, I feel like he's got things that are 
we can empathize with in terms of his but if that's where it ends i think it's nonsensical like you're basking in delight in being an infant if that's where it ends for right, you right right and <laughs> but i but, guess i can say if you want to bask in the delight of being an infant <laughs> that's totally your prerogative you're not you like any person yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I just don't see really what's worth respecting in that way. <laughs> no, no. There's a romanticism in wallowing in nostalgia. Uh, yeah, but you still got to get out of it. Oh, no, <laughs> I'm not saying you don't have to get out of it. I'm prescribe. Not, not, I'm not prescribing. Okay, but I'm you know what? Diagnosing. It, it does sound though a little bit like you're saying that there's a not insignificant amount of people who are, for one reason or another, incapable of seeing that as a warning. I've seen Gatsby as a warning and actually see him as a celebration. Yes. I and, do think that, and I think that's a problem. Okay. Well then maybe we're violently agreeing. <laughs> we probably are violently agreeing. But, <laughs> Which but, is a funny way of, that's just a term I like when yeah. you, you take a serpentine and full throated way to get to the same spot as someone. <laughs> so, so with Daisy, I, I, I want to know what your thoughts are on Daisy. Uh, do you want to do Daisy or Tom first? I guess let's do Tom. So here's the thing. Maybe if you're someone who has never read Great Gatsby or seen the movie and you are listening to this and being like, man, that Luke guy, he seems a little bit more mean in this one than in other episodes. (laughs) Okay. Let me tell you about Tom. Okay. (laughs) Here's a little bit of a tangible example of one of the least likable slash ethical characters I've ever come across in literature ever. So both in the book and in the movie, early on, Nick is at their house. Tom and Daisy are married, and they are old money, I guess, old American money. Like, they are rich beyond rich. They have a polo kind of field field in their backyard. All kinds of horses. They, they, their house looks a little bit like a Parisian palace <laughs> kind of thing, like almost like pillars and wafting curtains, and it's just crazy how rich these people are like riches and yet because this is again well i mean it's also of the time but there's a long long diatribe he goes on where he's complaining about everyone who isn't white well basically saying (laughs) that white people are the master race and they're going to be overcome by and it's just kind of like science no i know he's he's he is like a a social darwinist kind of thing great painting of just a a basically an ignorant fuck, mm-hmm. <laughs> but a, but a rich ignorant fuck, the worst kind. But he uses, yeah, but he uses like the po- the political argument for some of his own personal failings. Like he, this is just something I notice. Like if I think that there are people in the world, or there's a subset of a psychology that feels personal failings, so they attack at the level of the political because you don't really have to do any sort of like internal work (laughs) to figure out what you think politically about something. You know, it's like, I believe this policy. I believe that policy. It's been proven. And as the movie goes on and the book goes on, you realize, oh man, this is a guy who could put a lot of that, that energy he's putting into his political opinions. He should probably put into self-therapy or something because he is so ignorant and so racist. And so I wrote, like, he, we, we'd like to outsource our problems to avoid responsibility, which is another great thing. Every, everyone does that in this oh, yeah. book. Everyone yeah. outsources their responsibilities. So he's all gloat, meaningless talk. He's an ugly racist. 
How about this? He sets up a date. This happens in the movie. I can't remember if it happens in the book. He sets up a date with Myrtle, who is his mistress, at her husband's shop. Yes. Her well, husband happens in the book, too. Her, yeah, her husband is in the shop. He goes and sets up a date with her while he's there. Tells her, get on the train. <laughs> yeah. Like, I need to see you. He hits her. He abuses her. And he like this guy is fucking awful. Right and not only yeah not only is he uh, an adulterer he's also like an abuser and a racist like there's, mm-hmm. there's but then just when you think there's no way worse <laughs> or no way this guy can get worse he is I mean this is not probably unique to Tom I'm sure this happens with a lot of men maybe of this temperament or I, mean, I don't know this could be more common of men in general but he wants his mistress. But he hates Gatsby for loving Daisy, so he wants to be able to be, uh, he wants to be able to have his own infidelities. But he's it just fucking pisses him off. But it's crazy. Like he doesn't care as much if Gatsby and Daisy hook up. <laughs> he just cares if Daisy loves him or not. Well, n- sort of. But like he he is upset about when he because it takes him. It's funny because. He makes fun of Wilson for not being able to be aware that there's a an affair going on, but he's unaware that there's an affair going on until they show up at his house and he sees mm-hmm. how they're interacting. He's like, "Holy shit, my wife's cheating on me!" And then he's like, "I've just become aware of this. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna make changes now. Things are gonna be different because because he realizes, but he doesn't seem like he hates her for cheating, or he hates." Jay Gatsby for no, cheating. it's it's all well, and this is for Gatsby too. Tom is only his deepest angry at this situation if Daisy loves Gatsby. If she just wants to fuck him, that annoys him. But whatever, <laughs> he can yeah, get over it. Yeah, which I guess maybe in a modern context now we would consider that almost mature <laughs> on Tom's part. <laughs> But obviously, we can never, ever see Tom he, that way in the he, book. He's, on, he's only upset until he realizes he has the upper hand on Gatsby again, and he realizes he has the upper hand on Gatsby as soon as he starts telling Daisy mm-hmm. how Gatsby made his money. Yeah. Because one of the things about this book is that Daisy and Tom represent the aristocracy's smugness about yeah. their own... Yeah, I wrote. I have a note about that, actually, too. Like, yeah. Interesting how... He hates Gatsby. I wrote because of bootlegging, but whatever it is, Gatsby does. Like it's no, but he, the gray he does, accuse, the he does accuse him of bootlegging. So and like. so then it made me think about how aristocrats look at merchants who give people what they want. Yeah, right. Because what uh, I love that. Gatsby's, See, I want to get. I want to dig into that. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. Yeah, yeah. This is a huge part. I mean, there's a huge part too with Tom and Daisy and Gatsby all together. We should get to in a second too. But we definitely need to talk about this because this is. I I can't remember which episode we talked about. We talked about superiorism. Right. Yes. This yeah. is not elitism. What Tom's no. doing, he's doing superiorism because the very act of Gatsby providing a product such as alcohol or gambling or whatever that people want and are willing to pay for, because he feels like because he Tom feels it's crass or common or of the folk, he hates Gatsby for this. And I just couldn't. Like, Not this only is does a, he hate him, he despises him. Yeah, and this is a great example of superiorism where, well, what the fuck do you do for people, Tom? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> like, like even if you provided, obviously Tom has inherited all of his money, he's just rich forever, and Gatsby, at least, <laughs> is providing some sort of product that other people are willing to trade their money for, mm, right? Mm. 
Now, again, there are limits to this because like the most obvious example of something that is a limit of a market would be something like sex trafficking. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because there are people who provide <laughs> or or the product or the, or the fentanyl epidemic yeah or things right like there that, there yeah. are there are edge cases which would i think necessitate some regulation slash but again regulation is only going to work if the culture thinks it's worth regulating yeah which we <laughs> see with alcohol yeah and, and now marijuana in canada and mm-hmm. i think slowly in the united states too i mean it would be a pretty taboo thought experiment to think about what a culture would be like where 51% of the people were okay with sex trafficking. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But then again... I think, well, okay, if you want to look at a place like that, like Thailand. Well, I don't know enough about that to comment well, on. But yeah, I, I mean... I guess all of this to say is that like, I'm not a uh, across-the-board market libertarian. <laughs> yes, There yes. are definitely limits, but alcohol and gambling aren't the limit. No, no, <laughs> right? I like, completely agree. Clearly, there are people who can handle both of these things responsibly. And in an attempt to make a more free society, this is worth striving towards. Philosophically, finding the edge cases is super interesting. I'd love to do it sometime. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what's the, what's like, none of that matters to Tom, right? None of that. All that matters to Tom is that Gatsby makes his money being a commoner or providing for the commoners and yet i'm left with thinking well like uh we middle class folk who love getting stuff we want for good prices we need merchants right or vendors or people who are willing to do that Mm -hmm. to deal with us common folk i guess (laughs) and there's no even pretense of logical consistency for tom no, because, right? Like he, because he already had that his line. Logic is is based on on a class. It's it's on the class that he comes from, and yeah. and there's a great hint at this uh, when Daisy and Nick are first talking at the beginning of the book, and she's she's saying, "Oh, I'm hopelessly miserable. Like I'm not happy." She knows that Tom's cheating on her, or has a mistress, right? And she's going on about it, and then she's like, "Oh, you know, I'm so world weary. Like I've I've seen everything. Like I lived in Paris, and I lived in Europe, and you know, I lived in Chicago, and we've had so much fun. And I've seen it all. And uh, oh, oh dear God, I've become sophisticated." <laughs> and then and then Fitzgerald her own false idol yeah and but Fitzgerald says when she says it it's almost like with a smugness of like oh, there's a, s- a secret that I know of the world that you know you don't Nick sure like there's a like almost a, like a upper crust secret society type of of people who are cynical about everything. Yeah, cynical but like very self-important yes. about their own grouping in this scenario, right? And I don't know. I just feel like I could rail on Tom forever. I fucking hate this guy. <laughs> He's the biggest hypocrite in the book too because he when cuz he well Myrtle is of the low class. Yep. Like the yep. woman he he has no problem Going and fucking someone who's and deceiving uh, them into thinking that he loves them yeah, and wants to yeah, be with them. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how crude I want to make this. He has no problem sticking his dick in the lower class, but not his uh, standards. <laughs> <laughs> well, or or holding Gatsby to a standard where all Gatsby's doing is just providing a service and a product. And yet here's Tom cheating on his wife. His rationale, why it's not a bad thing, 
is he says, I go off on a spree, but I always come back as if that, (laughs) as as if that pardons the infidelity. So cheats on his wife with a woman, with a married woman, gets a little bit of glee out of cuckolding Wilson, gets mad at Daisy for doing the same thing he does, gets mad at Gatsby for being a merchant of the middle class and then has has no self-reflection. Oh, he also mocks under- him for throwing parties because he's like, I guess you have to throw parties to have friends these days. Yeah, so <laughs> he has, he just, he projects and he projects and he projects all of this disdain and yet he's caught up in it too. And the moment he's called out on it, he just doesn't care, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because he's just got his bat, he just can go right back to his arist- aristocratic polo games and say, well, you know what, no matter what you say to me, I got way more money than you, bitch. <laughs> That I didn't earn, and that's what makes me important. But and so, and so, like, this is why. But <laughs> I again, rail on but, this book. But again, but again, I mean, this is the genius of Fitzgerald. He tells us exactly why Tom is the way he is, because he was a football star back in his twenties, peaked at twenty-one, and now everything he does is a pale echo of his former glories, and he doesn't know what to do with himself. But and there's other things because he's a bitch. <laughs> That's why he doesn't know what to do with himself. <laughs> like, at least with Gatsby, I'm not impressed with Gatsby, but I don't hate him. I just think he's pathetic and sad. But with Tom... You hate him, yeah. Well, because, I, we, well here's, here's the big difference. I don't know. Maybe Gatsby does this too. Tom takes his nostalgia and his disillusionment with the past, and he goes out and he hurts people. Like, he goes and physically and mentally hurts people. And I guess Gatsby hurts Daisy a little bit too, emotionally. Mm. But but Tom, it's that extra layer of glee and satisfaction that Tom gets from making other people's lives worse by his own volition. Yeah, like Tom gets a joy out of that, which I think well, makes I, him. I think, I think he so gets terrible. a particular joy out of making people smaller and lesser than him, and like it's also he's also described as this kind of like Hulk of a man, like this gigantic, good-looking, rich. Like yeah, Joel Edgerton me, plays him in the movie, and he's definitely a good-looking guy. I, he, he reminds me of uh, the Weasel Boss twins from uh, from the Social Network. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a little bit. They're yeah. kind of perfect. They're from wealth. They're athletes. They're really good-looking. Like they have everything. And and what does Zuckerberg have? Nothing. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess he's going to Harvard. So, <laughs> not to belabor it. When Peterson talks about that extra layer of suffering that humans add that they don't need to because the world is full of suffering enough, Tom adds that extra layer of suffering onto other people. Yes. Yeah. So, again, the sadness, I mean, boohoo, poor Tom. He's not the football star he used to be. <laughs> just, just Now he's just a wealth. billionaire. <laughs> uh, again, but the, the thing is he still makes choices and the choices are to hurt others, you know? And so, again, if this is not a warning, what is it? Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. It's, Do you know what I mean? It's utterly a warning. So, this is why I find this book a little hard to stomach, is <laughs> someone like Tom. Not, not the book. I find Tom hard to stomach. Right. Which is why I'm a little colored in my opinion of the book. <laughs> An unlikable character. Well, I, I, don't, I can't even think of a character I've come across in a work of fiction that made me hate them as much as I've hated Tom. Never, this. really. No. Well, he's just awful. <laughs> You know, like oh, everything, everything is like not even any villain in any other. Well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. What about like the schoolmaster and David Copperfield? I don't think he's as bad as Tom. Fair. 
I, I don't know. Do you think it's because Tom is also wealthy? Uh, that adds a certain level of obnoxiousness to it, <laughs> which isn't exactly, but like Tom isn't just obnoxious. He's deeply unethical because he chooses to hurt. Right. Right. And so then like narratively, like why, this is a great example of why this, I don't feel like there's anything hidden from me in this book when I'm reading it. Cause I'm looking at Tom and I read Tom, uh, like the racist rant he goes on at the beginning yeah, of the book. Yeah. At that point I'm like, Oh, Okay. This is a person to avoid, obviously. <laughs> yeah. This is a way of being to avoid, obviously. And yet the characters seem to kind of not get that. No, I yeah, I, I think And um, but I'm wondering who could not get that? <laughs> who could ever read this book and not get that? Well, I don't think anyone doesn't get the time. Yeah, exactly. Awful. Yeah, no, I I think that's so he's, I, I don't know. I'm glad I got that out. I needed to vent a little bit about Tom because he's, it was building up. But I think he's the worst character in this book. But he's, his his difference is that he's choosing to be cruel. Where it feels more like Gatsby and Nick and Daisy are choosing to be passengers in their own life. Yeah. And then sadness i don't know what else do you think about tom is there anything else that comes to mind about (laughs) well i mean i think tom is a great example of we've talked about this before but someone who does not reflect on themselves (laughs) at all because there's no way you could you i mean maybe the thing is we don't hear his inner dialogue at all we don't even hear speculation on his inner dialogue that much although nick does make some comments but how on earth he can like he, he even makes statements like this is what wrong with society, families falling apart, you know, like like we're not family oriented anymore. <laughs> like he says stuff like that, which obviously is Fitzgerald saying this is what people like this say in situations like this. Or I think our women are just out and about too much now. He he notices that because he's like, How did like how did she meet Jay Gatsby, right? Uh, is how what he's wondering at one point again the hypocrite Even, because if he met a woman out and about he would have no problem spending <laughs> well, time with her and it's not just his it's obviously happened before in Chicago right because that's referenced in the book uh, like oh the you know the spree why don't you get him to tell you about his spree in Chicago right so to me it is just an example of someone who is driven almost entirely by their animalistic instinct desires. And then post-rationalizes their behavior, as opposed to someone who actually lives by first principles. Totally. I guess then it's just kind of like you see it the same, too. He just chooses to be cruel. I don't think there's anything um, <laughs> redeeming about... No. But, he's... I mean, I believe almost anyone can be redeemable, but I don't think there is anything redeeming in the character that's presented to us. Well, nothing happens in the story. Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> that would suggest that. I mean, I guess the only thing that I would say is that when he realizes his marriage is in trouble, he um, acts to try to save it. Now, is he? Uh, does he do that in a righteous and and, and upright way? No, but uh, yeah. But how does he act <laughs> to save his marriage? He, well, lies. And, he, yeah, he, yeah. he doesn't ever like be like, well. Maybe I should stop sleeping around. <laughs> no, no, no. There's it's just all that, just, hey, Daisy, don't go to Gatsby anymore. Well, no, there's that one scene where uh, where they're they're chatting over, I think it's cold chicken, and uh, 
an ale in the kitchen and then Nick looks in the window and sees them talking and is like, Oh, they're, they're coming to some kind of agreement or something. So <laughs> who knows? I don't know, but I guess that would be the only redeeming thing I can, could point to. <laughs> There's nothing in the story that makes <laughs> us think that when Gatsby's dead, and Daisy and Tom have moved on. That Tom's not just fucking oh. somebody else again. <laughs> I agree. I you agree. know, he definitely is. <laughs> anyway, maybe someone should write a sequel where Tom reforms himself and becomes reflective. <laughs> yeah. When I first read this book, it was uh, recommended to me by uh, a good friend named Brett Fawcett. And Brett, well, you know, when you're young, you kind of get into conspiracy theories and. But one of the Brett, Brett, I would accredit with actually being the person who made me start thinking critically about things. I remember uh, at one point in my life, we were having an argument, him and I, and I said, "Well, I'd rather believe because um, there's a a scene from in Narnia where Puddleglum says I'd rather uh, 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 is being talked to about." told that the real world's imaginary and the only world that has ever existed is the world that they're, the underground world that they're living in at that moment. And Puddleglum says, well, I'd rather believe in my imaginary world because my imaginary world is better than your real world. And it's used by C.S. Lewis as a kind, as a, as a reference to faith and a kind of a, a championing of faith, I would say. Whereas I don't think... Uh, that view. So, so I brought that up uh, to my friend Brett, and he said, "Well, if it's not true, why would you want to believe it?" Uh, and that's always stuck with me uh, that idea. But anyway, he introduced me to this, and and one of the things that he pointed out about this book is that Nick probably is gay, and there's a lot of references to this. But obviously, when Fitzgerald was writing, he couldn't write a gay character, um, so it's there's a lot of innuendo and stuff. And this book is full of innuendo. But one of the things you notice about this book is that Nick describes Gatsby in detail. He describes his appearance. He describes his personality. Daisy doesn't get a lot of description and whether this is something to do with more of the seeing male characters is more significant in books than female characters there's i mean obviously all kinds of feminist literature on on this particular point which i think there's merit to but daisy is is vapid daisy doesn't have a character in this book which i think is fascinating because she is the object of desire, but really what Fitzgerald has left us with here is an empty vessel with which men in the book have projected, onto which men can project their fantasies and desires. But not, on, not only that, that, that passage I read earlier, the incarnation was complete. The incarnation was not, and like, Daisy blossomed like a flower. I mean, I, I would hope that most of the men who listening to this podcast have, have been with a woman who, when they, you know, kissed or whatever, or first kiss, oh, kind of opened up to them in that way. And, and there's a huge intimacy and feeling of, of love that you can get from a woman in that moment. So that happens, but then suddenly the incarnation is complete. And what is the incarnation that Fitzgerald is talking about? The incarnation of this idea that it's that it was born in that moment in and it came into existence in Gatsby's mind, which tormented him for the rest of his life. And what I find interesting is that I think Tom actually understands Daisy better 
Tom does understand Daisy much better. And, and this goes into something I wanted to talk about a little later than Gatsby does, because he knows that the life that he's given Daisy is actually what she wants. And Nick realizes this when he talks about how people like Tom, people like Tom and Daisy, he, he, he groups them into the same socioeconomic, but also um, psychological category. And that category is what Tom is. Daisy's actually what Tom is. Because as soon as she discovers that Gatsby might be a merchant, (laughs) she immediately closes off to him. And now part of this goes back to Aladdin and is the opposite of what happens with Jasmine and Aladdin. Because we talked about like Prince Ali versus Aladdin. If Aladdin wasn't honest and he was pretending to be Prince Ali and then suddenly Jasmine finds out that he's not who he says he is. What if suddenly then Jasmine had just been like, which we talk about, I don't want to be with someone like that. I wanted Prince Ali. It would have not spoken well for Jasmine. Right. Well, that's Daisy. That's who Daisy's Daisy is. Daisy's the fallen Jasmine. Yeah, like she <laughs> is the, the counterexample, let's say, in that Jay's always lied to her. From the very beginning, he said that he has wealth, that he's from a wealthy Midwestern family. And really, his entire life after meeting her is creating the reality out of the facade that he had initially presented her with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's all. I think that's apt. That, uh, that definitely jives with how I see Daisy. I mean, I don't, I don't think she's any more vapid than Nick is <laughs> in the book. Or maybe you mean vapid, like maybe vapid is the wrong word. Well, actually, I see vapid as boring. Maybe I don't actually think. You, she's do you mean boring. shallow? Yeah, yeah. Like, and I think the things that she cares about, like she's obviously a little bit upset that Tom's cheating on her, mm-hmm. but not enough to make a big deal out of it. Yeah, all of this reminds me of this idea. So Dan Dennett has this idea called a skyhook. You ever heard of the skyhook before? I mean, I've heard of the scientific idea of the side oh well i don't know about that one so maybe we can swap stories sometime but i think like from a philosophical point of view a sky hook is a anchor that you give your belief systems that everything else can hang off of yep yeah but then once you ask well what's the hook hanging off of it's just nothing it's just the sky it's just and it's supposed to be i think I mean, I think Dennett uses it as a metaphor for religion. Once you postulate that there is a God, everything hangs from that. Right. But right. then once you ask, well, where did the God come from? Uh, wrong question. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, but in Great Gatsby, I would borrow the phrase to say that I think all these characters have skyhooks that they've put up where Daisy could say something like, oh, well, because of maybe her skyhook is prestige or being part of this upper society, upper crust. And then once you have that, everything follows, right? Like, well, yeah, you actually need to be independently wealthy. You can't make it through slumming around with the bums. And you need to have it for a long time. And you need to act this way. And you need to be a polo player. And you need to, et cetera, right? But what never gets asked is, when's the value of the skyhook? <laughs> yeah, why, why is it valuable to why be Why is it valuable class? to be in the upper class? Now, you could then say money, but then, okay, well, why is it valuable to have so much more money than you ever need to survive? And what cost might that have on your 
personality, let's say, or your soul or your outlook. In yeah, the world, what, right? uh, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul, right? So what happens is no one in this book pays attention to their own skyhooks and starts to question why that would be where they arbitrarily draw their line in the void to fall from. And I think that that is an open question to anybody, not just the characters in The Great Gatsby. And I think at least best we can do now is pick our skyhooks to base our lives off of from things that are the most thought through, at least. <laughs> yeah. And, at least have some kind of, well, have a foundation of first principles. Mm-hmm. Like, And you could say, well, these are my first principles. Of course, I don't know if I don't agree with that philosoph- or that a philosophic idea because i think at the end of the day everything's kind of ethereal and you can't really build um no no i think anything i think you're right i think it is ultimately ethereal ultimately, or everything's or dust hook. and ashes yeah everything's eventually going to go to dust and ashes and so everything is kind of based on nothing. <laughs> well, I mean, argue. I mean, and then another way of putting it is everything's based on you know you, you you're putting your value. You are making value propositions. So okay, here's another way to phrase it. Then, what the characters in the book don't do, and what I think a self-reflective person should at least aspire to, is to understand what their skyhook is, or what their foundational fiction is why it's that way and what it produces and then then it then it's at least the ultimately meaningless thing that you've chosen i like that i like the <laughs> phrase uh the the foundational fictions that's yeah well that's one, um yeah. that's uh I, I first heard that from an eric weinstein he, you know i think he was like saying we need better fictions yes like right. we don't need microaggressions we need <laughs> you know grand narratives of our civilization yes 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 (laughs) because not to pick on campus buzzwords but i don't think they're that well thought out (laughs) i think that they're used as a club not as a philosophical principle they're they're you they're just they're tools of manipulation by people who who gain from i think we would have more respect for daisy in the book if she was able to clearly articulate why she's choosing the kind of vapidness of aristocracy and why that's more important to her than maybe her feelings or developing her soul or like what we might classically think of as a developing an individual persona and stance in the world as opposed to being a passenger on the train of opulence and obnoxiousness that Tom is able to provide for her. If she was at least able to say, I'm choosing that because I think I would, ra- I would rather do that then develop i still wouldn't agree with her but i at least could respect her more but her not even saying that like gatsby like tom like nick and the other characters in this book none of them even ask about their foundational fiction that animates anything that they're doing it's like a complete mystery to them yeah i would make a i think i could make a case that the trauma that nick experiences with Gatsby's funeral at the end may awaken in him an understanding sure. of yeah. the uh, emptiness of No, I could things. hear that argument. I think uh, 
especially the way they move it, if he's if therapy is successful for him. Yeah. Maybe he does grow <laughs> from it. But he again, I would say he's the only one who seems like he could grow. Right. Right. And that's fair. <laughs> like all Tom, Gatsby, and Daisy seem so far down the rabbit hole of persona and I don't know the right word because I'm not an aristocrat. So uh, just, I guess, kind of like why it's so important to be better than other people. Like in a tangible, well, financial. But it's like, it's so far but above my head. it's not just head. financial. It's right? not just financial because Gatsby's rich. To be better than someone. Inherently. Inherently. Like inherently. Believe you yeah. are inherently but the better. The superiorism. Yeah. And why that matters. Well, None I, mean, of I think we can make it arguments for why we think it matters to people on a psychological level because it's a it's a need for self-worth it's probably there yeah but you'll notice that no one in the book ever seems to have peace of mind no no <laughs> i can't help but point that out <laughs> for no, these people that's true that's true <laughs> they're just always worried about the next thing as opposed to enjoying anything that but they also doing. like there's so much lazing around and like I don't know if I want to go. Maybe we'll go somewhere. Maybe we won't. Let's just go. Like, it's it's very odd. Well, part of that indecision, again, I mean, this book is the perfect example of the polar opposite of what Emerson is talking about in Self-Reliance. Okay. This is the anti-Emersonian story, if there ever was one. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so then Daisy just... She cares about Jay, but she knows about Myrtle too. So she knows that Tom is cheating yeah, on her. But yeah. again, that supports what you were saying, how her lifestyle in this new club is more important that's to her all than the infidelity right? of her husband. It's all, it's more important <laughs> than her supposed love for Jay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. See, I want to make one more point about her. So I, I talked about how she's kind of an empty vessel in this book, except there's a lot of descriptions of her as someone that men would be interested in. How she talks, how she makes men feel, how she makes Nick feel, how she makes Jay feel. She seems to have this almost mystical ability to inspire emotions. It's this idea of the siren, the siren song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like so, from the Odyssey. This is actually an issue that I have with many authors. I would even put it uh, many contemporary fantasy authors in that they, they paint women as they are in relation to men as, instead of as individuals and and ha- and having their own significance and we see this here however i give fitzgerald the pass on this because of his other book uh this side of paradise in which he paints very full and wholesome images of women uh so it's obvious to me why he's made daisy this way and i think this is part of the brilliance of it because the entire point of well I, i'll get to that at the wrap I'll get to the entire point of the, what I think the entire point of the book is at the wrap up. But suffice to say, normally I, I think I would criticize more the lack of depth that Daisy seems to have as a character as opposed to the other male characters. But I think there's a rationale for it. Okay. Well, actually, that actually, there's a great line I have about Gatsby that dovetails into what you were just saying about that because this is talking about how this is Nick talking about Gatsby's feeling for Daisy. And it's the colossal vitality of his illusion. Ah, uh, yeah. So he's building someone up in his head that's not fair to Daisy. Not at all. For one thing. Not at all. For sure. But it's not the base of a healthy relationship. And it's always better to meet a person where they are. And, I mean, again, we've talked about this, but um, that Nietzsche line, the desire is always 
more important than the desired. Gatsby's feeling for Daisy is more important than Daisy to him. And he never can articulate why or how that is. He doesn't even... There's nothing about Gatsby in the movie or the book where we're like left thinking, man, he, he probably could do that and then chose not to. Like He just is incapable somehow of understanding that. And I don't know. I find Gatsby whiny <laughs> and not sure of himself. So there's this, in the movie, there's this really interesting scene. It's kind of like when he's first starting to get to know Nick a little bit and they're driving along in his car. And he's, he's really eager to disabuse Nick of rumors about him because he needs to seem legit, right? Like he, he knows that there's rumors of him out there and he doesn't even really ask Nick or like he doesn't answer Nick's questions about it. He like needs to be, he initiates the dissolution of the rumors. He's like, oh, you probably heard this about me. It's not true or whatever, right? As opposed to a person who would have a strong core. If there are rumors about you, if you have a strong core, then you're, you wait for someone else to bring them up. And then you ask them what they think about that, what evidence they see for something like that. And then you answer. But it's like, no, Gatsby has to do this like a priori, like this is something yeah. he needs to do before things can get started. And it just betrays his need to be, to look legitimate, regardless of what the fact of his life might be. And I, you know, that's the, uh, so there's, and I think this is actually Fitzgerald's most impressive thought. And then you see it very prevalent in uh, uh, this side of paradise. There's a line probably my, one of my favorite quotes from any book. It was always the becoming he dreamed of, never the being. Yeah. 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 Um, which I, that's think, a, I think that's a fun inversion of the Nietzsche line. Yeah. Or a play on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so here's a quote that I think encapsulates Gatsby in a, in a really good way. An instinct towards his future glory had led him some months before to the small Lutheran college of St. Olaf's in Southern Minnesota. He stayed there two weeks, dismayed at its ferocious indifference to the drums of his destiny, to destiny itself, and despising the janitor's work which he was which he was to pay his way through. Then he drifted back to Lake Superior and was still searching for something to do on the day that Dan Cody's yacht dropped anchor in the shallows along shore. Gatsby's idea of himself is is something that happens to a lot of people who are told that they're special. And I think this is another reason that people mischaracterize him as a hero, as we were talking about earlier, because he becomes something special, or at least something that appears special. But his idea of himself is one of fatalistic greatness. Uh, It's the same theme very differently articulated that we see in crime and punishment where people think that they are extraordinary and they think why cannot the why can't the world recognize how extraordinary i am i think this is one of the most prevalent delusions in modern culture i think people thinking they're special and not just thinking they're special but then looking for ways to define themselves as special and then clinging to those specialities as identity yeah, yeah. Part A big part of the reason that I love that idea is because I grew up thinking 
that I was going to be great, that I was destined for some grand purpose, some world-saving endeavor. And uh, there was a band I knew in high school that went to my high school called Destined for Nothing, and they achieved it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that grand delusion is so fascinating to me on a very personal level, but as well as um, a societal level. And I think that is what Gatsby encapsulates as a character is the whole problem with his thinking is his skyhook. And his skyhook is, I am destined for greatness. Mm -hmm. And this is why his relationship with Daisy is so catastrophically bad, even though it can seem romantic from the outside, is that because he's already delusional about himself, he's immediately delusional about every other relationship in his life. Yeah. And I mean, that also, because of that specific thing, it makes me think a little bit too that maybe one of the reasons this book is so famous is that it does have that smack of kind of an exceptionalism to it. Not to the book, but the characters feel a certain exceptionalism to themselves that doesn't really seem warranted i mean there's nothing anyone does that would deserve their kind of expected level of importance in the world and so that could be a good meditation on american exceptionalism too and like that kind of maybe that really negative attitude of superiority that you might get just because you exist in a certain country (laughs) let's say the thing though i can't I can't shake this feeling of like, I'm missing something in this book. I just feel like I'm missing something because it just seems too easy. Like this book seems so, so easy to understand that I feel like I must be missing something because of how famous this book is. (laughs) Like when I read about the things that Gatsby's struggling with and Nick and Daisy and Tom and then the other characters, I see their struggle and I'm like, oh yeah, that would suck if you went that way. You shouldn't. Well, and I, think, then it's, I think that, and then I mean, I think you bring up that a lot. It's really hard to imagine not knowing the things that you know. It's right. really hard to go back to not having the knowledge that you have once you have it. Mm-hmm. And perhaps because of all the philosophic reading you've done and psycho- psychological reading you've done and personal reflection and, and things like that, you're like, well, this seems really obvious to me. But... I don't think it is to most people. And well, I, I don't know about that. And I'm not going to, I don't think it, I'm not going to make a comment on any of that. I just would say then I think that, I guess I would want to have more conversations with people about this book because when Gatsby has his moments of putting his kind of warped idea of love onto Daisy and I just would want to know what people think about that because it seems really easy to me to see, hey, don't do that. Yeah, like we'd love to hear from anyone what they love about this book uh, so that we can better understand it. Definitely. Too. Like, that's so definitely any listener true. who wants to, to tell us why they love The Great Gatsby or mm-hmm. why they hate it, I'd love to hear. Now, and I mean, I'd like, love to hear those thoughts. There is a fairness to the idea that part of the best way to deceive others is to deceive yourself, too. I think that's even, there's like a, I forget the, Trivers, I think the scientist talked about the evolved, the potential evolved benefit of self-deception in that it's really easy to deceive others 
if you're deceiving yourself because then you'll act like it's the truth <laughs> and yep, then you've convinced yep. other people that it's the truth too. It's just that, so Gatsby goes to this entire length in this book. Like all of the things that he does are fundamentally to get Daisy back or to get Daisy to love him. And like, this is a multi-year process. I mean, how long is, I think it's at least three years from five, when, five right? Yeah, so almost it's a, five, yeah. So a five-year process where not once it occurs to Gatsby to be like, well, what if she doesn't feel that way? What do I do then? You know, it's just like all his eggs are in one basket. And again, that just is like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> that that's but lots gonna of people let do you that. down. I don't think so. I don't know. I, I would say I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that I, I think I think people put all of their meaning. Well, you know what? I guess I'm having more faith in people than that, where I'm going to say that I think this idea of the thoughtless internet generation person is actually a creation of the internet. And actually people have never been smarter Hmm. (laughs) than they are now. Hmm. And we just get, but since we have the same psychology, I don't think it's a lack of intelligence that uh, produces people like Gatsby. I don't think at all. I think it is a, it's starting from the wrong place and then continuing down that path. Sure. Yeah. Okay. But I think that part of intelligence is being able to think laterally and ponder counterfactuals. Like I do think the ability to ponder hypotheticals, counterfactuals and abstractions is tied to intelligence. So. Right. But I I think that can be part of it. Like Catsby says, so if I move to New York, if, if I go to Long Island, get this mansion work in bootlegging for five years throw all these parties be extravagant be mysterious be chummy but not really but daisy doesn't go for that okay what's plan b right right and there is no plan (laughs) what is plan b (laughs) yeah 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 uh and again it's like the danger of getting so fixated on one thing that you are destroyed if it doesn't happen oh absolutely well it's that like you said expectations versus reality that we talked about at the very beginning yeah final meditations on the movie I mean, we probably brought him up, but I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> the ostentation of wealth makes for a shallow person and aristocracy. I heard it's really hard to take rich people seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, it's hard to take the people who are at this level of wealth seriously in their <laughs> things that they seem concerned with. <laughs> and I liked, uh, just as a piece of art, I really loved how there's a parallel of the shiny fakeness of the movie. So it's all sizzle, no steak. And the movie kind of makes you feel that by the way it looks. Right. And it's shiny you know, I too, thought the yeah? cinematography in the yeah. film was really, really well done. And then, I mean... Actually, yeah, everything about that movie was pretty well done. Uh, definitely. It's a very well-made movie. And then Daisy and Tom's marriage. So it's kind of a weird open secret that Tom is inf- infidel. In, in unfaithful unfaithful and even that daisy would maybe be too and so like i and i had an interesting conversation with someone else about this because i think like it's not like i'm necessarily castigating things like polyamory but that's not what's happening in this book this is not an example of ethical non-monogamy. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not at all. It's the specificities. And so, like, I remember I talked to somebody once about how that they thought maybe I was being judgy of 
polyamory. I was like, well, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> I mean yeah. that they are aggressively unfaithful, not telling, and then jealous or angry or dysfunctional when they find out that the other one is cheating. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't mean, yeah, you know what I mean. I know what you mean. But I guess, just to reiterate, my thought on this is that if Fitzgerald intended this book as a warning of how not to be, it's probably genius. And because I don't actually think that there's any other kind of ethical interpretation of what he's doing, that's the one I'm going to give. But I do think it's an incredibly good warning. Yeah, <laughs> Like yeah. it's not like a, only it's a warning and it's a stupid warning. Like it's, it is really great to be understanding of why you shouldn't let your desires rule your presence in the world and why you shouldn't build things up and why you should really pay attention to what you're pursuing. Like what we talked about with, I think it was in um, Return of the King, a Return of the King episode, when we talked about the difference between Gollum and Frodo. Once Gollum is pursuing the ring, he's killing his friends. Once Frodo is pursuing to destroy the ring, he's befriending people of the quality of Aragorn and Gandalf. And I think that there's a parallel here where once Daisy and Gatsby are pursuing something that they could never find, that's like a form of the ring and it destroys them. And there's just, I guess there's really not anyone except for maybe Nick at the end who's pursuing the destruction of the ring, which is self-reflection and self-discovery. And so... Even more than that, like I mentioned, no character ever seems to be happy or have a peace of mind. Like they laugh, but then they're sulking again because of their weird aristocratic problems that they have. And so it just made me realize so much how this is a perfect example of what happens if you are not self-reliant. If you need something outside of yourself. Was there, was there a quote from Emerson on this that you wanted to... Oh, I already yeah. said it. Right, yeah. Discontent is yeah. infirmity of the will. It is the want of self-reliance. And if there's a word that could sum up the mental states of every person in this book, it's discontented. Yeah, yeah. I will... Uh, my final thoughts, I'm going to reread the quote that we read at the beginning because then I, I think... Hopefully you will be convinced that this is a a tragedy by Fitzgerald and no, you've convinced <laughs> me it is a tragedy. Um, I so- I think our actual disagreement is on how much, in a positive or negative way, this character is perceived in our culture. Right. Not right. you think the story it's, itself. You don't think that it's positively um, viewed, and I do. I think it is positively viewed by a lot of people. I think those are people who don't actually know the story. Right. Okay, so Gatsby believed in the green light. The orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms further, and one fine morning. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Now, the great thing about the green light and which I think is the most iconic symbol of this book, is it represents so many different things to so many different characters. For Daisy, the green light is 
living a happy, carefree life in which she just gets to experience whatever she wants whenever she wants, but doesn't have any problems really and never has any comfort. A perennial thing that I know Fitzgerald brings up a lot and he brings it up for a reason is her complaining about how hot it is because that's like the discomfort that she's experiencing in that moment. She doesn't want to experience discomfort. Gatsby is pursuing love because love took the place of destiny for him in that moment where he kissed Daisy and suddenly his life was transformed into a pursuit of of romantic love as opposed to a pursuit of self-aggrandizing destiny. Tom is reaching back into his past when he found meaning and purpose in being a football star and now doesn't have any and can't seem to find any. Uh, And so he's wandering through life, you know, like some kind of animal with any momentary pleasure he can find. (laughs) Nick is, is seeking fulfillment in other people's drama and lives and him and Jordan even there's that scene where they are talking about it like it's so common for people to talk about other people's lives because they want to find meaning in their own and their lives aren't interesting I'd say make your life interesting instead of talking about other people's interesting lives (laughs) that seems like a better path but the reason that quote impacts people so much is because I think it's a bit of a slap in the face to everyone saying all this striving you're doing I mean you can't go back to the past of course you can old sport (laughs) that's the delusion right that's the problem with nostalgia that's even I would argue make grats be uh, great again (laughs) (laughs) yeah like uh you can't go back and you shouldn't try because if you try probably destroy your entire life Mm. okay i figured it out i figured out what is bugging me about this book okay so this is a little bit of a reference to a previous episode but in east of eden we came up with this concept or we you know talked about because in this book is concept of team shell thou mayest and what's beautiful about east of eden and that idea is that it is your choice and what is the tragedy maybe of what you're saying in this book is that none of the characters are able to comprehend team shell yeah none of them are able to comprehend the fact that they could choose a way out of this or that their choices are continuing to put them down paths that just lead to heartache and sadness and well their choices to continue rowing against the current that's still pushing them yep that is their choice and so that like this book is essentially the kind of well the characters in this book are the opposite of lee and samuel yes in east of eden and yep. so since i loved lee and samuel maybe that's why maybe that's why it bugs you so much rubs yeah. me so hard because it's the complete opposite of something i love <laughs> yeah yeah i'd agree and so i just feel like you're right those character descriptions are so apt for everyone and that's why i just really hope that it can be understood why like this this is just the best this is the best warning book i've ever read (laughs) 
There you go. There you go. Maybe it is a great book. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening to another episode of Really True Fiction. Yeah, I hope that you've... Uh, I haven't pissed too many people off, but if I have... We'd like to hear why. Uh, yeah, I'd like to hear why. And also that you can rest assured that I just... I really mean it. <laughs> I'm not He's being authentic. I'm not garnering any potential false outrage out there. <laughs> I do truly dislike the characters in this book as much or more than I ever have. <laughs> anyway, uh, my name's Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. Goodbye. Hey, goodbye. <laughs>